God bless us and the Virgin protect us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We continue. We've seen that the very format of the third secret has been revealed to us, a symbolic vision without the accompanying explanation. That format in itself is already a sign of judgment. It's a sign of the state of men's hearts. Sister Lucia has said, the third part of the secret is a symbolic revelation, referring to Our Lady's words, if not, Russia will spread her airs throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. It is conditioned by whether or not we accept what the message itself asks of us. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her airs throughout the world, etc. Since we did not heed this appeal of the message, we see that it has been fulfilled. Russia has invaded the world with her errors. And if we have not yet seen the complete fulfillment of the final part of this prophecy, we're going towards it little by little with great strides. It is not God who is punishing us in this way. Rather, it is men themselves who are preparing their own punishment. On that basis, then, we're trying to draw probable conclusions as to the meaning of the vision and the third secret. So far, we've been contemplating the first part of the vision, the scene with the angel and the flaming sword. And since we weren't given the words of Our Lady explaining this, we considered some of the symbolism in the vision itself. We've been considering the comments made by the popes during their visits to Fatima. With all that as a loose framework, we're going to now consider other statements from various reliable sources to try to get some idea of the probable meaning of this first scene. When we've gone through that, we'll then turn to the second half of the vision. We know that when Sister Lucia had written The Third Secret, she placed it in an envelope and wrote on the outside, quote, By express order of Our Lady, this envelope can be only be opened in 1960 by the Cardinal Patriarch of Lisbon or the Bishop of Liera, close quote. Cardinal Ottaviani interviewed Sister Lucia in 1955. He said, The message was not to be opened before 1960. I asked Sister Lucia, Why this date? She answered, Because then it will be clear. Close quote. There's certainly nothing in the vision that would be clear after 1960. But as we've seen during his visit to Fatima, Pope Paul VI warned that in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, the internal peace of the church was at risk. He spoke of how evil it would be if what was intended to be a spiritual renewal of the church were derailed. He referred to what we would call the spirit of Vatican II while speaking of unauthorized interpretations that dissolving the traditional structure and constitution of the church. He spoke of true teachings be substituted by new teachings which are not of the faith. And he spoke of a final transformation into profane mentality and into worldly customs. Now in that light, here are a few papal commentaries from the 60s, 70s, and 80s on the state of the church which seemed to be referring precisely to that spirit of Vatican II inspiring these unauthorized interpretations, dissolving the traditional structure and constitution of the church, replacing true teachings with new teachings that are not of the faith. Pope Paul VI. The church is in a disturbed period of self-criticism, or what could be better called self-demolition. Close quote. Quote, the opening of the world became a veritable invasion of the church by worldly thinking. We have perhaps been too weak and imprudent." Close quote. Quote, there's a great disturbance in this moment in the world of the church, and thus it is the faith that is in question. 
What is happening today reminds me of the obscure phrase of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. When the Son of Man returns, will he still find faith on the earth? Books are being published in which the faith is denied in important points, yet the bishops remain silent, as if they do not find anything strange in these books. This, in my opinion, is bizarre. I sometimes read the Gospel of the End Times and discern that in this moment they're emerging some signs of this end. Close quote. Quote, we believe that something preternatural has come into the world precisely to disturb it, to suffocate the fruits of the ecumenical council, and to prevent the church from bursting out into hymns of joy. I have the sensation that from some fissure, the smoke of Satan has also entered the temple of God. In the church, too, this state of uncertainty reigns. It was believed that after the council, a sunny day in the church's history would dawn, but instead there came a day of clouds, storms, in darkness. Close quote, Paul VI. St. John Paul II. We must admit realistically and with profound suffering that Christians today feel lost, confused, perplexed, and also disappointed. There are, are, there are ideas diffused which are in contrast with the truth as revealed and always taught. There are true and proper heresies diffused in the field of dogma and morals. The liturgy has been altered. Immersed in intellectual and moral relativism and therefore in permissiveness, Christians are tempted by atheism, by Gnosticism, by vaguely preached Illuminism, and by a sociological Christianity, deprived of definite dogmas and moral objectivity. It is necessary to begin all over again. Close quote, St. John Paul II. Pope Benedict XVI, quote, Why has the implementation of the Council been so difficult? There's an interpretation I would call a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture. It has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media and also one trend of modern theology. This interpretation risks ending in a split between the preconciliar church and the postconciliar church. It asserts that the texts of the council do not yet express the true spirit of the council, and therefore it is necessary not to follow the text of the council, but its spirit. In this way, obviously, a vast margin was left open for the question of how this spirit should subsequently be defined, and room was consequently made for every whim. Close quote, Pope Benedict XVI. Now let's be clear. In these quotes, the popes are not speaking of the council in and of itself, but instead of a, they're speaking of a spirit associated in some way with it. In that light, in an interview published in 1990, Cardinal Adi, a close friend of Pope uh, St. John XXIII, stated, quote, The secret of Fatima contains a sad prophecy about the church, and for this reason Pope John did not divulge it. And neither have Paul VI or John Paul II. It seems to me that what is basically written is that the Pope would convene a council in 1960, which, contrary to expectations, would indirectly result in many difficulties for the church. Close quote, Cardinal Silvio Adi. And in his 1995 biography, Cardinal Adi wrote, quote, The prophecy of Fatim was completely defied. It is a lack of sense, I would say, because according to the interpretation that seems to me most worthy of consideration, the third secret, which John XXIII and his successors thought inopportune to reveal, is not about a supposed conversion of Russia, still far from becoming a reality, but regards the revolution in the Catholic Church. From a council convened to throw light on the beauty and profundity of the Christian mystery by presenting the church as the spouse of Christ, 
according to the beautiful words of the same Pope John XXIII, so many innovations were born that they appear to constitute a true internal revolution. Close quote, Cardinal Adi. From a council convened to throw light on the beauty and profundity of the Christian mystery by presenting the church as a spouse of Christ, so many innovations were born, they appear to constitute a true internal revolution. Father Jose de Santos Felino. Now he's a Salesian priest. He was born in Fatima. His aunt is Sister Lucia. And immediate family members were the only ones that had access to her since 1957. So he stated in an interview, quote, I have my own idea, which naturally could be totally mistaken. I hold that part of the secret concerns the church internally. Perhaps doctrinal difficulties, a crisis of unity, wounds, rebellions, divisions. The last phrase written by my aunt, which precedes the still unknown portion of the secret, says, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved. Afterwards begins a passage which we do not know. However, that phrase makes clear that the theme of the missing part could be li linked to this last published affirmation. Therefore, in other parts of the church, this dogma could waver. We are in the area of suppositions. After receiving an order from a bishop to write down the third secret, Sister Lucia struggled for more than two months, but still could not bring herself to do it. She said this was not due to natural causes, and she remained unable to write down the secret until the Blessed Version appeared to her on January 3rd, 1944, and told her it was God's will. Speaking of, of this difficulty, Father Alonso, now he was the official archivist of Fatima. He had unrestricted access to Sister Lucia and her writings. He asked, quote, how are we to understand Lucia's great difficulty in writing the final part of the secret when she has already written other things that were extremely difficult to put down? Had it been merely a matter of prophesying new and severe punishments, Sister Lucia would not have experienced difficulties so great that a special intervention from heaven was needed to overcome them. But if it were a matter of internal strife within the church and of serious pastoral negligence on the part of high-ranking members of the hierarchy, we can understand how Lucia experienced a repugnance that was almost impossible to overcome by natural means. Close quote. Now, as we've seen during the sermon at Fatima, St. John Paul II cited Apocalypse chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, when he spoke of another sign appearing in heaven, a great red dragon whose tail swept down a third of the stars and cast them to earth. We've seen that among other things, those li lines are warning that Satan is inside the church and the person of his apostate bishops, priests, and people. They're warned against false teachings and changes in doctrine. We've seen that ben Pope Benedict XVI echoed this teaching when he stated that the sufferings of the church come precisely from within the church. The greatest persecution of the church comes not from enemies without, but from sin within the church. And that when he's saying this, he seems to be reiterating exactly what the scriptural commentaries uh, spoke of when they treat of the great red dragon, that the red color is a warning of martyrdom and communism, that the dragon is seen in heaven, heaven being a symbol of the church, and that the trouble in those days will be inaugurated within the church by apostate bishops, priests, and peoples. That the tail of the dragon represents this cunning hypocrisy by which he succeeds in de deceiving a large number of the faithful and the pastors. And through false doctrines and principles, he'll mislead the clergy. And by those lax principles, they'll infect the laity. Now, in her last public interview, given on December 26, 1957, to the vice postulator for the case's beatification 
of the now Saints Francisco and Jacinta, Father Augustin Fuentes, and by the way, this was published with ecclesiastical approval at the time, Sister Lucia stated, Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling on them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. The punishment from heaven is imminent. Father, how much time is there before 1960 arrives? It will be very sad for everyone. Not one person will rejoice at all beforehand if the world does not pray and do penance. I'm not able to give any other details because it is still a secret. According to the will of the Most Holy Virgin, only the Holy Father and the Bishop of Fatima are permitted to know the secret, but they have chosen not to know it so they would not be influenced. This is the third part of the message of Our Lady, which will remain secret until 1960. Father, the devil is in a mood for engaging in a decisive battle against the Blessed Virgin. And the devil knows what it is that offends God the most, and which in a short space of time will gain for him the greatest number of souls. Thus the devil does everything to overcome souls consecrated to God. Because in this way the devil will succeed in leaving the souls of the faithful abandoned by their leaders, thereby more, the more easily he will seize them. That which afflicts the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Heart of Jesus is the fall of religious and priestly souls. The devil knows that religious and priests who fall away from their beautiful vocation drag numerous souls to hell. The devil wishes to take possession of consecrated souls. He tries to corrupt them in order to lull to sleep the souls of lay people and thereby lead them to final impenitence. He employs all tricks, even going so far as to suggest the delay of entrance into religious life. Resulting from this is the sterility of the interior life and among the lay people, coldness regarding the subject of renouncing pleasures and the total dedication of themselves to God. In that light, remembering, and among, among other things, that the color the great red dragon symbolizes communism and the dragon is seen in heaven, the symbol of the church. We'll briefly recount three anecdotes that we spoke of in our conference on cultural Marxism. All three of these anecdotes pertain to the heirs of Russia inside the church. One, Bella Dodd was a communist who served as legal counsel for the Communist Party in the United States until Bishop Sheen brought her into the church. She stated that, quote, in the 1930s, we put 1,100 men into the priesthood in order to destroy the church from within, close quote. Now these young men weren't necessarily communists, they are young radicals. And the idea was for them to be ordained and then strive for positions of influence and authority. Two, in 1953, Manning Johnson, another former official of the Communist Party in America, testified before the House Un-American Activities Camp Committee, quote, the tactic of infiltration of religious organizations was set by the Kremlin. In the earliest stages, it was determined that it would be necessary to concentrate communist agents in the seminaries, because these institutions would make it possible for a small communist minority to influence the ideology of future clergymen in the past conducive to communist purposes." Close quote. And three, remember that Wilhelm Reich, the cultural Marxist who coined the phrase sexual revolution, discovered it was entirely useless to debate the existence of God with the seminarian. But as Dr. E. Michael Jones has pointed out, Reich saw clearly that the idea of God evaporated from the mind of seminarians who became enmeshed in sexual vice.
the idea of God evaporates from the minds of seminarians who become enmeshed in sexual vice. We saw that Reich's principle here has had practical applications in seminary formation, at least in these United States. For example, in the late 1970s, in a scandal which was publicly exposed at the time, Father Kenneth Untner, he was the rector of St. John's Seminary in Plymouth, Michigan, showed the seminarians X hardcore movies. He later moved to a position where he could inflict even more damage by serving as a bishop of Saginaw from 1980 until his death in 2004. The idea of God evaporates from the minds of seminarians or priests or bishops who become enmeshed in sexual vice. So given all that, and given that that which afflicts the immaculate heart of Mary and the heart of Jesus is the fall of priests and religious souls, how has all this played out? We'll answer that question by just quickly considering the data that are available here in the United States. In 1965, there are almost 13 priests for every 10,000 Catholics. 2002, there were seven priests for every 10,000 Catholics. That's a decline of 46%. Between 1965 and 2001, the percentage of parishes without a resident priest increased by more than 500%. Just consider the data on male religious orders in the states. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Holy Cross seminarians decreased by 70%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Jesuit seminarians decreased by 89%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Dominican seminarians decreased by 89%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of OFM conventional seminarians decreased by 90%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of OFM Capuchin seminarians decreased by 91%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Carmelite seminarians decreased by 92%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Benedictine seminarians decreased by 93%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Holy Ghost seminarians decreased by 94%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Precious Blood seminarians decreased by 95%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of OFM seminarians decreased by 97%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Vincentian seminarians decreased by 97%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Augustinian seminarians decreased by 97%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Redemptorist seminarians decreased by 98%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Marianol seminarians decreased by 98%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of Christian brothers in formation decreased by 99%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of OMI seminarians decreased by 99%. Between 1965 and 2000, the number of passionist seminarians decreased by 99%. And between 1965 and 2000, the number of last let seminarians decreased by 99%. Behold, a great red dragon whose tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to earth. Father, the devil is in the mood for engaging in a decisive battle against the Blessed Virgin. And the devil knows what it is that offends God the most, which in a short space of time will gain for him the greatest numbers of souls. Thus the devil does everything to overcome souls consecrated to God, because in this way, the devil will succeed in leaving the souls of the faithful abandoned by their leaders. 
thereby the more easily he will seize them. We've seen that on a visit to Fatima, St. John Paul II pointed out that Our Lady cannot keep silent on what undermines the very basis of our salvation. And that this implies that the message of Fatima contains a warning regarding dangers to our Catholic faith. In 1952, Pope Pius XII gave Father Schweigel, an Austrian Jesuit, the mission to ask Sister Lucia 31 questions concerning the conversion of Russia. On September 22, 1952, Father Schweigel interviewed Sister Lucia. After returning to Rome, one of his colleagues asked him about the third secret. Father Schweigel replied, quote, I cannot reveal anything of what I learned at Fatima concerning the third secret, but I can say that it has two parts. One concerns the Pope. The other, logically, although I must say nothing, would have to be the continuation of the words, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Close quote. So the third secret contains two parts. One concerns the Pope, the other is the continuation of the words in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Father Joaquin Alonso, he's the official archivist of Fatima, we've already mentioned him, had unrestricted access to Sister Lucia and her writings. Based on what she had said and written, in 1965, Father Alonso reached these conclusions about what followed, etc. in the phrase, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved. Quote, it can be clearly deduced from this that in other parts of the church, these dogmas are going to become obscure or even lost altogether. Thus, it is quite possible that in this intermediate period which is in question, after 1960 and before the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the text makes concrete references to the crisis of faith in the church and to the negligences of the pastors themselves, to internal struggles in the very bosom of the church and of grave pastoral negligence by the upper hierarchy and deficiencies of the upper hierarchy of the church." Close quotes. In that light, here are a few excerpts from letters written after 1960 by Sister Lucia. Quote, Unfortunately, in religious matters, the people for the most part are ignorant and allow themselves to be led wherever they're taken. Hence the great responsibility of the one who has the duty of leading them. There's a diabolical disorientation invading the world and misleading souls. The devil has succeeded in infiltrating evil under the cover of good, and the blind are beginning to guide others. And the worst is that he has succeeded in leading to error and deceiving souls, having a heavy responsibility to the place which they occupy. They are blind men leading other blind men. They let themselves be dominated by the diabolical wave invading the world. Let people say the rosary every day. Our Lady has repeated that in all of her apparitions, as if to fortify us in these times of diabolical disorientation, in order that we not let ourselves be deceived by false doctrines. Close quotes, Sister Lucia. Now, in the recent biography of Sister Lucia that was written by the Sisters of, of the Carmel of Coimbra, where she lived from 1948 until her death in 2005, there's a commentary on the meaning of the phrase, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved. And I quote from this biography. This promise of Our Lady does not mean the Portuguese are protected and advanced against evil. They can do whatever they want and will always be safe. Although Sister Lucia was a person of few words when she commented about the message, some time ago she let this slip out as she was meditating. Quote, 
If Portugal does not approve abortion, then it is safe. But if approved, it will have much to suffer. For the sin of the person, that person is responsible and pays for it. But for the sin of the nation, all the people pay for it. Because rulers who enact unjust laws do so on behalf of the people who elected them. Close quote, Sister Lucia. We continue. Today, Portugal is under the weight of three social sins that require reparation and conversion. Divorce, abortion, and the civil marriage between persons of the same sex. It is a great moral crisis that explains all their crises. While immorality rages as a deadly plague, all the people groan and have much to suffer. But the promise will be fulfilled because there will always be a remnant poor and humble that will be like yeast in the dough. Victory over evil is always and only from God, and he does not triumph by power, but always to the small and the poor. Snow lilies will sprout in the middle of the swamp. Close quote. Portugal does not approve abortion, that it is safe. But if proved, it will have much to suffer. For the sin of the person, that person is responsible and pays for it. But for the sin of the nation, all the people pay for it, because their rulers who enact unjust laws do so on behalf of the people who elect them. That's really worth meditating on. For the sin of the nation, all the people pay for it. Because the rulers who enact unjust laws do so on behalf of the people who elect them. For this nation, all the people pay for it. We've seen it on a visit to Fatima, St. John Paul II stated that the message was addressed to every human being, to all societies, nations, and peoples. Societies menaced by apostasy, threatened by moral de degradation, threatened by collapse. And he presented himself in Fatima as a witness to the almost apocalyptic menaces looking over the nations and mankind as a whole. He explicitly mentioned apostasy. That's the sin, again, by which a baptized person completely and utterly rejects and repudiates the faith. Heresy, again, is a sin by which a baptized person voluntarily and obstinately denies one or more of the truths of the faith, something that's been revealed by God and proposed by the Church for our belief. In his 2003 letter, Ecclesia in Europa, the church in Europe, St. John Paul II spoke in detail of the problems of societies menaced by apostasy, threatened by moral degradation, threatened with collapse. Quote, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is an open question, which clearly reveals the depth and drama of one of the most serious challenges which we are called to face. Many men and women see disoriented, uncertain, without hope. A feeling of lowliness is prevalent. Many people will not lack in material necessities, feel increasingly alone, left to themselves, without affection or support. There's a selfishness, a growing overall lack of concern for ethics, and an obsessive concern for personal interests and privilege. This is accompanied by a kind of fear of the future, as something bleak and uncertain viewed with more dread than desire. Among the troubling indications of this fear are the inner emptiness that grips many people and the loss of meaning in life. The signs and fruit of this anguish include, in particular, the diminishing numbers of births, the decline in the numbers of vocations to the priesthood and religious life, and the difficulty, if not the outright refusal, to make lifelong commitments, including marriage. Many of the baptized live as if Christ did not exist, 
the number of the unbaptized is growing. The great certainties of the faith are being undermined. Various forms of agnosticism and practical atheism are spreading. There's a deep crisis of conscience and of Christian moral practice. We're witnessing the emergence of a new culture, largely influenced by the mass media, which is in conflict with the gospel and the dignity of the human person. Living one's faith in Jesus becomes increasingly difficult in a social and cultural setting in which that faith is constantly challenged and threatened. In many social settings, it is easy to be identified as an agnostic than as a believer. The impression is given that unbelief is self-explanatory, whereas belief is neither obvious nor taken for granted. There's also vague and deviant religiosity. There are evident signs of a flight to spiritualism, of a frantic search for extraordinary events. Often those in need of hope believe that they can find peace in fleeting and insubstantial things. For example, with a paradise promised by science or technology, with the selfish pleasures of consumerism, with imaginary artificial euphoria produced by drugs, or even with the attraction of oriental philosophies, with the quest for forms of esoteric spirituality, with the different currents of the New Age movement. The disturbing signs of growing hopelessness thus continue to intensify, occasionally manifesting themselves also in forms of aggression and violence. At the root of this loss of hope is an attempt to promote a vision of man apart from God and apart from Christ. This sort of thinking has led man to, be, to being considered as the absolute center of reality, a view which makes him occupy falsely the place of God, and which forgets that it is not man who creates God, but God who creates man. Forgetfulness of God led to the abandonment of man. European culture gives the impression of silent apostasy on the part of people who have all they need and who live as if God does not exist. Close quotes, St. John Paul II. That's 14 years ago. Living one's faith in Jesus becomes increasingly difficult in a social and cultural setting in which that faith is constantly challenged and threatened. European culture gives the impression of silent apostasy on the part of people who have all they need and who live as if God does not exist. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is an open question. Are we living our faith? We're just going through the motions. Living one's faith in Jesus becomes increasingly difficult in a social and cultural setting in which that faith is constantly challenged and threatened. On that note, consider this excerpt from a very recent interview of Professor Robert Speyman. He's a prominent German Catholic philosopher and a former member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Question, what would you, with all your wisdom and life experience, and also as someone who grew up under National Socialism, counsel all Catholics in this current and difficult situation. What would be, so to speak, your testament for all people in the world today who take your voice very seriously and eagerly take in your words? Profe Professor Speyman. It was easier during Nazi times to be a faithful Christian than today. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith upon the earth? In 1990, Cardinal Adi, close personal friend of St. John the 23rd, stated that in regards to the third secret, quote, the Blessed Virgin is alerting us against apostasy in the church, close quote. In 1995, Cardinal Chiappi, the papal theologian to Pope Pius XII, 
St. John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul 1, and St. John Paul 2 stated, quote, In the third secret it is foretold, among other things, that the great apostasy in the church begins at the top. Close quote. There's a fascinating passage in the Catechism of the Catholic Church which speaks of the apostasy in a way that we should all ponder very carefully. I quote from the Catechism. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Close quote, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Let's turn to the second half of the vision. Sister Lucia. And we saw in an immense light that is God something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white. We had the impression it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women were just going up a steep mountain, at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with a bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city half in ruins. And half trembling with halting step, afflicted with pain and sorrow, he prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. In the same way there died one after another, the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross there were two angels each with a crystal aspisorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, and with it, sprinkle the souls that were making their way to God. Close quote. Now there's a lot of scriptural imagery there. We're only going to touch on a few of the themes. Among other things, mountain is symbolic of a place of an encounter with God. Just as the four rivers flowed out of the Garden of Eden, which is on a mountaintop, so Moses encounters the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai. You have the temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, the cross on Mount Calvary, and of course, symbolically, the altar in a Catholic church. Among other things, the big city calls to mind the great pagan city of Nineveh, that by the preaching of Jonah was threatened with destruction, but spared when the citizens repented. It also calls to mind Jerusalem, where the citizens rejected the preaching of Christ, was subsequently destroyed. And finally, it calls to mind the city of Rome, which to even a casual visitor, to use the words of St. John Paul II, quote, gives the impression of silent apostasy on the part of people who have all they need and who live as if God does not exist, close quote. It's also symbolic of the church, the Catholic church, inner human element. And thus the fact that it's half in ruins can be understood in both a, a physical as well as a spiritual sense. The corpses can also be understood in both a physical as well as a spiritual sense, dead in the common sense of the word and or spiritually dead. Cardinal Ratzinger's comments on this. The Pope seems to precede the others, trembling and suffering because of all the horrors around him. 
Not only do the houses of the city lie half in ruins, but he makes his way among the corpses of the dead. The church's path is thus described as a way of the cross, as a journey through a time of violence, destruction, and persecution. The concluding part of the secret is a consoling vision. Beneath the arms of the cross, angels gather up the blood of the martyrs, and with it they give life to the souls, making their way to God. Here the blood of Christ and the blood of the martyrs are considered as one. The blood of the martyrs runs down from the arms of the cross. The martyrs die in communion with the passion of Christ, and thus their death becomes one with his. For the sake of the body of Christ, they complete what is still lacking in his afflictions. Their life itself has become a Eucharist, part of the mystery of the grain of wheat, which in dying yields abundant fruit. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians, said Tertullian. As from Christ's death, from his wounded side, the church was born, so the death of the witnesses is fruitful for the future life of the church. Therefore, the vision of the third part of the secret, so distressing at first, concludes with a, an image of hope. No suffering is in vain, and is a suffering church, a church of Mars, which becomes a signpost for man in his search for God. Close quote. So the symbolism in the second part of this vision calls to mind a whole series of images of mountains as places of encounter with God, the Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, uh, Mount Moriah with the temple, uh, and since, uh, it, you know, Calvary. It's, this mountain itself, it's surmounted by a cross, and there's so many dying there in the vision. It's particularly evocative of Mount Calvary and also the altar in a Catholic church. In terms of city, the big city calls to mind Nineveh, spared when the cynicism repented. It also calls to mind, at the same time, Jerusalem, destroyed when the, when the citizens rejected the preaching of Christ. It also calls to mind the city of Rome, which in our day and age seems to have largely rejected Christ as well. The city is also symbolic of the Catholic Church and her human element, and thus the fact that the city is half in ruins can be understood in both a physical and spiritual sense to apply both to cities such as Rome as well as the church and her human element. The corpses, as we've seen, can be understood both physically and spiritually. The Pope's journey symbolizes both the Pope as such as well as the church on the way of the cross, the church in her passion, traveling through a time of violence, destruction, and persecution. Among other things, the path up the mountain symbolizes persecution and martyrdom of the faithful. Now remember, what we're trying to do is draw probable conclusions as the meaning of the vision. And since we weren't given the words, once again, we'll start by considering the comments of Sister Lucia and the popes, then those who have read the secret, and we'll add some other comments from other sources. Sister Lucia, the third part of the secret is a symbolic revelation conditioned on whether or not we accept what the message asked of us. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. Since we did not heed this appeal to the message, we can see it's been fulfilled. Russia has invaded the world with her errors. And if we have not yet seen the complete fulfillment of the final part of this prophecy, we are going towards it little by little with great strides. If we do not reject the path of sin, hatred, revenge, injustice, violations of the rights of the human person, immorality, and violence, etc. It is not God who is punishing us in this way, rather it's men themselves who are preparing their own punishment. In his kindness, God warns us and calls us to the right path while respecting the freedom he has given us. Hence, men are responsible. So, the symbolic vision with the city half in ruins, filled with corpses, and the slaughter and martyrdom of the Pope and so many clerics and laity with bullets and arrows, which is something that did not have to come to pass since it's conditional. But the condition to avoid the disasters seen in the vision was to heed Our Lady's requests. And as we've already seen, and as Sister Lucia notes, 
We didn't do that. Since we did not heed this appeal of the message, we can see it's been fulfilled. Russia has invaded the world with her errors, close quote. And Sister Lucy also points out, and this she wrote in 1982, that, quote, if we have not yet seen the complete fulfillment of the final part of this prophecy, we are going towards it little by little with great strides, close quote. Well, that pace has only increased since 1982. The errors of Russia do indeed fill the world, as we've seen in an earlier conference, now, these errors even fill the Catholic Church in her human element. Now, before we get into that, let's make sure we keep our perspective in terms of the chaos in the whole, up at the Holy See. It's really important to keep your perspective because people can really get themselves wrapped around an axle and fall away, and we don't want to do that, okay? There's a clear and pleasant danger for good Catholics to scandalize themselves when they consider these things. So, so to that end, we'll consider some thoughtful comments written by Frank Sheed during the terrible chaos that followed the council. Quote, in the criticisms uttered by many, there's a failure to see Christ as the whole point. Israel, the chosen people, as the prophets show, was even worse than the hardest, harshest critics think the Catholic Church. Yet it never occurred to the holiest of the Jews to leave it. They knew that however evilly the administration behaved, Israel was still the people of God. So at the church. An administration is necessary if the church is to function, but Christ is the whole point of the functioning. We're not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the pope. Christ is the point. I myself admire the present pope at the time it was Paul VI. But even if I criticize as harshly as some do, even if his successor proved to be as bad as some of those who have gone before, even if I sometimes find the church as I have to live in it, a pain in the neck, I should still say that nothing a pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church. Though I might well wish that he would. Under the worst administration, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the limit of our willingness, close quote. Nothing a pope can say or do should make any one of us wish to leave the church. Though, as Frank Sheed says, we might well wish that he would. We've got to keep our perspective. Christ is the point. Christ is the point. Under the worst administration, we can still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the limit of our willingness. Christ is the point of the church, not the chaos and evil done by the guys with the collars on. Okay. In an earlier conference, we briefly considered the religious errors of Russia that prevail in the Catholic Church today. We saw that one error per, uh, pertains to the orthodox concept of church unity, and that the orthodox have splintered themselves into all kinds of particular independent national churches. We saw this error of Russia has been promoted in Rome to the point where we now have countries where the Catholic Church apparently has different teachings from other countries. For example, in Germany, active adulterers are invited to receive communion. Well, right next door in Poland, it's completely forbidden. That line on the ground makes a heck of a lot of difference. We saw another error pertains to marriage and that the Orthodox have totally and completely corrupted the clear gospel teaching of Christ, 
regarding the indissolubility of marriage by allowing a divorced individual to marry a second and even a third time. We saw that another error pertains to Holy Communion and that the Orthodox allow these divorced and so-called remarried people who are living in sin to receive Holy Communion and thus they officially allow sacrilege. We saw that these heirs of the Orthodox who pretend that people are living in sin are actually married, and then who compound that scandalous recognition by extending to these poor sinners an official invitation to make sacrilegious communions. We saw that these heirs of Russia have both been heavily promoted in the application of Morris Letizia, even by the Pope, who to varying degrees has shown his approval for active adulterers to be given Holy Communion in the Buenos Aires pastoral region of Argentina, in the Diocese of Malta, and in his own diocese, the Diocese of Rome. We also saw these very heirs of Russia were first promoted on a grand scale in the Catholic circles, not by the so-called liberals, but by the traditionalists. The traditionalists are the one that did this. Groups like the Society of St. Pius X, for example, for decades, in a direct repudiation of the teaching of the Council of Trent, have encouraged countless couples to simulate the sacrament of marriage in their chapels, and thus to live together without the benefit of an actual sacramental marriage, and yet at the same time, to continue receiving communion. And there's not a peep from the Tratty Press about any of this, not a peep. Another religious error of Russia pertains to the whole notion of contraception. I quote from an Orthodox website. The voluntary control of birth and marriage is only permissible when the birth of a child will bring danger and hardship. According to the common teaching of the Orthodox Church, when such a decision is taken before God, the means of its implementation, implementation are arbitrary. There are, in the Orthodox opinion, no means of controlling birth and marriage which are better or more acceptable than others. Close quote. So translated into ordinary English, yes, you can use contraception. You don't need me to point out to you this particular error has almost completely infested our church from top to bottom. And we include the Pope in one of his interviews made essentially the same point as the Orthodox passage we just quoted. And if there were any doubts about just exactly what the Pope meant on his flight, uh, back from Mexico, the very next day, the Vatican spokesman, Father Federico Lombardi, clarified it. I quote, Vatican spokesman, the contraceptive or latex device, in particular cases of emergency or gravity, could be the object of discernment in a serious case of conscience. This is what the Pope said, close quote. According to Lombardi, the Pope spoke of, quote, the possibility of taking recourse to contraception or latex devices in cases of emergency or special situations. He's not saying this possibility is accepted without discernment. Indeed, indeed, he said clearly that it can be considered in cases of special urgency, close quote. Now, by the way, direct contraception is one of the very few things that is actually intrinsically evil. It's against both the laws of God and the natural law. Again, where's the warning about sacrilegious communions for these people? How we need to pray and sacrifice for our Pope. These sort of things shed a somewhat different light on one of St. Jacinta's comments. Sister Lucia, quote, In Jacinta's love for the Holy Father and for sinners, she said to me many times, Poor Holy Father, I feel sorry for sinners. Close quote. Why might she feel sorry for the sinners? Because they're being misled by the Pope. They're being misled by the Pope. Another reason for her to be so concerned for him. We need to really pray and sacrifice for the Pope. 
How many bishops or priests actually love our Lord anymore? How many? If they do love him, where's the evidence? Why aren't they protecting him? Not just the people from making sacrilegious communions, why aren't they protecting our Lord? What do they care about? What do they believe? Do they love our Lord? The situation has gotten so grim, we're actually seeing many of our so supposedly Catholic leaders embracing these religious heirs of Russia and so doing, actually and literally advocating for pastoral practices that will bury their people and any priest that goes along with them into the very depths of hell. In the early 1980s, Sister Lucia wrote to Cardinal Cafara, quote, Father, the time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. And those who work for the good of the family will experience persecution and tribulation, close quote. This last May, Cardinal Cafara stated, quote, what Sister Lucia wrote to me is being fulfilled today, close quote. All of which makes it easy to see what St. John Paul II was speaking of when he warned us to have nothing to do with the great red dragon whose tail swept so many stars down to earth. And in that light, given that among other things, the city is symbolic of the Catholic Church and her human element, the fact that this city is half in ruins and full of corpses is easy to understand spiritually insofar as anyone has subscribed to these heirs of Russia because he's dead. But this, this, spiritual, this symbolic vision isn't simply spiritual. This vision of a city half ruined and full of corpses and so many bishops, priests, and laity being slaughtered also pertains to the social order. In other words, this is a preview of upcoming events in the political order. Sister Lucia, if we do not heed Our Lady's requests, if we do not reject the path of sin, hatred, revenge, injustice, violations of the rights of the human person, immorality and violence, etc., the good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. We've seen that in one of his sermons at Fatima, St. John Paul II went through a whole litany of horrors of the last century. The First and Second World Wars, the other wars throughout the world, the concentration and extermination camps, the gulags, ethnic cleansing and persecutions, terrorism, kidnappings, drugs, the tax on unborn life in the family, all for the purpose of demonstrating that when man puts God aside, he cannot achieve happiness, but ends up destroying himself. In a 1980 interview with a slight German group of German Catholics, St. John Paul II was asked, what is going to happen to the church? And he answered, we must prepare ourselves to suffer great trials before long, such as will demand of us a disposition to give up even life and a total dedication to Christ and for Christ. With your and my prayers possible to mitigate this tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it, because only thus can the church be effectively renewed. How many times has the renewal of the church sprung from blood? This time, too, it will not be otherwise. We must be strong and prepared and trust in Christ and his mother and be very, very assiduous in praying the rosary. Close quote, St. John Paul II. That sounds very much 
like a reference to that mysterious persecution we see portrayed in the vision. We must prepare ourselves to suffer great trials before long, such as will demand of us a disposition to give up even life and a total dedication to Christ and for Christ. With your and my prayer, it is not possible to mitigate this tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it. We must be strong and prepared and trust in Christ and his mother. Be very, very assiduous in praying the rosary. Regarding the part of the Pope and the third secret, we've already considered our Lord's warning that if the ministers of the church keep following the example of the King of France, delaying the consecration of Russia, they'll fall into misfortune. We already considered how that warning shed some light on this mysterious vision of the martyrdom of a Pope and with him some so many bishops, priests, religious, and laymen in the midst of a half-ruined city. We saw our Lord appear to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and ask the King of France publicly consecrate France to the Sacred Heart, but that the kings paid no attention to our Lord's request. We saw that exactly 100 years to the very day, to the very day, when our Lord had requested the king to consecrate France to his sacred heart, a legislative gathering that had been called together by the king revolted against him, proclaimed itself to be an assembly of the people, stripped the king of his legislative power, and ignited the terrible chaos of the French Revolution. We saw this assembly then passed a bill insisting that the Catholic Church in France be subject to the state, requiring the bishops to be elected by the citizens, and the clergy to become played employees of the government. We saw that every single priest in France was required publicly swear an oath that he believed the nation of France was the ultimate authority over all religious matters. We saw that while living under house arrest, the king privately consecrated France and vowed that if he were restored to power, he would do this publicly, but that this consecration that he made was too late to save France from the revolution and the reign of terror. We saw that the king was guillotined, and during the reign of terror, a total of somewhere between 19 to 40,000 people were massacred, and over 16,000 people were guillotined a 10-month-long bloodbath of torture, rape, murder, and cannibalism. We saw that when our Lord warned that since his ministers were following the example of the King of France, delaying the execution of our Lord's command, that they would follow him in a misfortune. It was in fact a warning that as a consequence of not consecrating Russia in a timely fashion, her heirs will spread and take root, which they have, and the resulting societal chaos ministers of the church, including the Pope, will follow the King of France in a misfortune. In other words, it's likely they will suffer and die by execution. We saw this seems to take, that it will take place during the catastrophic chastisements resulting from ignoring Our Lady's request. Some of St. Jacinta's visions seem to pertain to that time of social chaos. Sister Lucia, one day we spent our siesta down by my parents' well. Jacinta sat on the stone slabs on top of the well. Francisco and I climbed a steep bank in search of wild honey among the brambles in a nearby thicket. After a while, Jacinta called out to me, didn't you see the Holy Father? No. I don't know how it was, but I saw the Holy Father in a very big house, kneeling by a table with his head buried in his hands, and he was weeping. Outside the house, there were many people. Some of them were throwing stones. Others were cursing him and using bad language. Poor Holy Father, we must pray very much for him. One day, two priests recommended us to pray for the Holy Father and explained to us who the Pope was. Afterwards, Jacinta asked me, is he the one I saw weeping, the one Our Lady told us about in the secret? Yes, he is, I answered. The lady must have sh surely have shown him also to those priests. You see, I wasn't mistaken. We need to pray a lot for him. At another time, we went to, the, to a cave. As soon as we got there, we prostrated ourselves on the ground, saying the prayers the angel had taught us. After some time, Jacinta stood up and called out to me, Can't you see all those highways and roads and fields full of people who are crying with hunger and have nothing to eat? And the Holy Father in the church praying before the Immaculate Heart of Mary? 
and so many people praying with him. Some days later, she asked me, can I say I saw the Holy Father and all those people? No, don't you see that's part of the secret? If you do, they'll find out right away. All right, then I'll say nothing at all. Close quote, Sister Lucia. We've seen that Benedict XVI spoke of the passion of the church as symbolized by the suffering Pope and the vision. And in that vision, we see this mysterious scene in which the Pope was, quote, killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. In the same way, there died one after another, the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions, close quote. The Pope, other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions are killed by bullets and arrows? Arrows? What could that possibly mean? Regarding this point, on Saturday, March 21st, 2015, the Italian newspaper Il Giornale published an article about, quote, a jihadist manual to bring the guerrillas to Rome. The advice, use crossbows and handmade bombs, close quote. The article states, it is precisely on Rome the jihadist ISIS and sleeper cells in Italy have set their eyes. In the jihadist ebook, the author dispenses advice on how to set Rome on fire. Quoting from the Jihad ebook, quote, The advent of the war for the conquest of Rome mainly consists of urban warfare in the cities and roads of Europe, close quote. The Jihadists suggest, quote, rudimentary weapons because they are easy to use and because in many cases they are not illegal. Such weapons are considered life-threatening and are also good for self-defense. They should not miss homemade bows and arrows, close quote. So the idea is to stockpile weapons whose possession is not currently illegal, like bows and arrows, so they can be employed in urban guerrilla warfare. Now that raises another question. Why would the jihadists have their eyes set on Rome? The goal of taking Rome actually goes back to Muhammad himself. Anything their so-called prophet Muhammad said, they take as an order, as a revelation from God. So there's a hadith. A hadith is a saying of Muhammad that isn't uh, preserved in the Quran, but in other collections. There's a hadith in which Muhammad said the Muslims would conquer both Constantinople and Rome. So they got Constantinople in 1543. It's now called Istanbul. Okay, the current e-magazine published by ISIS for jihadists is entitled Rumia. And each issue opens with a quote. Umujadeen, those are the warriors. Umujadeen rejoiced for by Allah, we will not rest from our jihad except beneath the olive trees of Rumia. Now Rumia is their name for Rome. Mujahideen rejoiced, for by Allah, we will not rest from our jihad except beneath the olive trees of Rome. Their jihadist, jihadist magazine is named Rome because they're serious about it. It's a religious imperative for them that they haven't managed to accomplish even since Muhammad's time. Now, just to get some feel for what they write about, and I do not recommend going to this thing, it's unbelievable, but uh, consider this excerpt from Issue 9. The objective of hostage-taking in lands of disbelief, and specifically in relation to just terror operations, is not to hold large, hold large numbers of the infidels, I'll just use that, our word, uh, us, hostage in order to negotiate one's demands. Rather, the objective is to create as much carnage and terror as one possibly can until Allah decrees his appointed time and the enemies of Allah storm his location or succeed in killing him. This is because the, the hostile infidels only understand one language, and that is the language of force, the language of killing, stabbing, slitting throats, chopping off heads, flattening them under trucks, and burning them alive till they give the Jizah while they are in the state of humiliation. 
close quote. It's lovely. And they're serious. They're really serious. That's like one of the most reasonable things I can quote from that magazine. They're serious. Slick, beautiful pictures, serious. Remember, one of the goals of the culture Marxist, one of the heirs of Russia, is to promote massive immigration to destroy identity. And so we have massive, massive numbers of the jihadists flowing into the West, most especially into Europe. Rome is chock full of these men. It doesn't take too much foresight to see what's just around the corner there. And suddenly we can understand a probable context for St. Jacinta's visions of the Holy Father, a probable fulfillment for the misfortune on falling on the ministers of the church for not doing the consecration of Russian Italian matter. How, at a physical level, the city will be half in ruins and how the Pope, the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions may very well be killed by bullets and arrows. It also brings into sharper focus some of the prophecies and visions the Virgin of Revelation gave to Bruno. April 12, 1947, in her message to Pope Pius XII, the Virgin of Revelation said, quote, From the east, a strong people, but far away from God, will unleash a tremendous attack and will break the most holy and sacred things when it will be allowed them to do so. July 21, 1998, Bruno, I dreamt the Muslims surrounded the churches and closed the doors of believers inside in prayer. We're throwing gas and starting fires from the roofs. January 1st, 1999, Bruno, a punishment will suddenly come from the East. They will receive the power to be able to subjugate those whom they call infidels. This will happen very soon. February 10th, 2000, Bruno, I'm with all the faithful in St. Peter's to gain jubilee indulgences. We suddenly hear a booming of a great explosion, then screams, death to the Christians. The crowd of barbarians ran into the basilica, killing anyone they met. Bruno's vision of January 1st, 1985, has many themes to consider. Bruno, I'm transported to the center of Rome, to Piazza Venezia. A huge crowd is crying, revenge, revenge, terrible revenge. Many dead were in the square and in the streets. I also saw blood all over the world, the entire world all smeared with blood. Suddenly the crowd shouted, everyone to St. Peter's, everyone to St. Peter's. So I too in the crowd was pushed to St. Peter's, while everyone in a chant of hatred and anger continued to shout revenge. Same time, Bruno heard another word scream furiously, Bosnik, which in Russian, as he later discovered, means without God. The Pope, Cardinals, bishops, priests, and religious were within the colonnade in St. Peter's Square. They were barefoot and crying, dried their tears with a white handkerchief in the right hands, while they had ashes in their left hands. I asked, why, Lord, why all this? And I heard the voice of the Virgin cry out, morning, great morning, pray for help from heaven, do penance, pray, penance. Then she repeated three times, pray, 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 penance, penance, penance. They cry because they can no longer hold back the evil that rages in the hearts of the men in the world. Man must return to the true God. And she said, to the holy God, do not debate which God. Then I heard a different voice, a stronger voice cry out saying, I am. Then the virgin began to speak again. Man must humble himself and obey God's law, and not look for another law that moves him away from God. Then the different voice, the stronger voice, cried out, My church is one, and you have made it many. My church is holy, 
and you have made it unholy. My church is Catholic. It's for all men of goodwill who accept and live the sacraments. My church is apostolic. Teach the way of truth, and you will have, and you will give life and peace to the world. Pray, humble yourselves, do penance, and you'll have peace. He had visions of a pope in distress. January 21st, 1975. Bruno, I'm always dreaming of the fleeing pope. Everything explodes. Blood, much blood. Many are attacked. Many priests and sisters are dismembered in St. Peter's Square. Wounded Pope, June 9th, 1982. Bruno, last night I dreamt again. I'm in St. Peter's, right in front of the Basilica, waiting for the Pope. The people around were shouting, here he is, here he is. A cry, the Pope is on the ground, stained with blood. And killed. February 7th, 1986. Bruno, while the Pope was celebrating Mass, there was great confusion and voices raised threateningly. They advanced towards the altar. The police began shooting. There were shouts, flee, flee, the Pope is hid. Blood reddens the white cassock and shots are heard. He is dead. He is dead. Turning back to papal statements, we've seen that when in the context of a question as to whether the vision of the third secret includes the sufferings of the church for the horrific sins of the sexual abuse of minors, Pope Benedict states the church has a deep need to relearn penance, accept purification, and also need for justice. We then asked, keeping in mind this is another one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance, what would divine justice look like in the case of the sodomitical abuse of so many altar boys? What would a purification like that look like? In that light, we'll consider a few indications associated with this message. From the 1957 interview with Father Fuentes, Sister Lucia. Tell them, Father, that many times the Most Holy Virgin told my cousins Francisco and Jacinta, as well as myself, that many nations will disappear from the face of the earth. She said that Russia will be the instrument of chastisement chosen by heaven to punish the whole world if we do not beforehand obtain the conversion of that poor nation. Father, my mission is not just to indicate to the world the material punishments which are certain to come if the world does not pray and do penance beforehand. No, my mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we are in of losing our souls for all eternity if we remain obstinate in sin. On the morning of September 15, 1943, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, the Bishop Liera Portugal ordered Sister Lucia to write down the third secret. She struggled for months, but try as she might, she simply couldn't get it done. On January 3, 1944, she went to the convent chapel to pray. Then the Virgin Mary appeared to her and told her to be at peace, write what they ordered you, but now what has been given you to understand its meaning. Sister Lucia then states, quote, I felt my spirit flooded by a mystery of light that is God, and in him saw and heard. The tip of the spears of flame unlatches and touches the axis third. Remember that in the vision of 1917, there was that angel holding a flaming sword in his, his, in his left hand, flashing, it gave out flames that looked like they'd set the world on fire, but they died out in contact with the splinter of our, that Our Lady radiated towards him with her right hand. In this vision, however, it seems as though Our Lady has removed her hand, and so the end of the flaming sword held by the angel is the tip touching the Earth's axis. That's only a guess. We continue. The tip of the spears of flame unlatches and touches the axis of the Earth. It shudders. Mountains, cities, towns, and villages with their inhabitants are buried. The sea, the rivers, and the clouds emerge from their limits, overflowing and bringing with them in a whirlwind houses and people in numbers that are not possible to count. It is the purification of the world because of sin as it plunges. Hatred and ambition cause a destructive war. Then I felt the rapid beating in my heart, in my mind the echo of a gentle voice saying, In time, one faith, one baptism, one church, 
holy, Catholic, and apostolic. May eternity, heaven. This word heaven filled my soul with peace and happiness so that almost without realizing it, I was repeating it for a long time. Heaven, heaven. Close quote, Sister Lucia. The October 1981 uh, issue of the German magazine Stimme das Glaubens reported a discussion that Pope John Paul II had in November of 1980 with a select group of German Catholics. And this is a verbatim report of the discussion. Quote, the Holy Father was asked, what about the third secret of Fatima? Should it not have been already published by 1960? Pope John Paul II replied, given the seriousness of the continents, my predecessors in the Petron office diplomatically preferred to postpone publication so as not to encourage the world power of communism to make certain moves. On the other hand, it should be sufficient for all Christians to know this. If there is a message in which it is written that the oceans will flood whole areas of the earth, and from one moment to the next millions of people will perish, truly the publication of such a message is no longer something to be so much desired. The Pope continued, Many wish to know simply from curiosity a taste for the sensational, but they forget that knowledge also implies responsibility. They only seek the satisfaction of their curiosity, and that is dangerous, but at the same time, they are not disposed to do something, and if they're convinced, it is impossible to do anything against evil. At this point, the Pope grasped the rosary and said, here's a remedy against this evil. Pray, pray, and ask for nothing more. Leave everything else to the Mother of God. The Holy Father was then asked, what is going to happen to the church? And we've heard this, but it bears repeating. He answered, we must prepare ourselves to suffer great trials before long, such as will demand of us a disposition to give up even life, and a total dedication to Christ and for Christ. With your and my prayer, it is possible to mitigate this tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it, because only thus can the church be effectively renewed. How many times has the renewal of the church sprung from blood? This tomb, time too, it will not be otherwise. We must be strong and prepared and trust in Christ and his mother. Be very, very assiduous in praying the rosary. If there's a message in which it is written that the oceans will flood into whole areas of the earth, and from one moment to the next, millions of people will perish. Truly, the publication of such a message is no longer something so much to be desired. Many wish to know simply from curiosity, but they forget that knowledge also implies responsibility. They only seek the satisfaction of their curiosity, and that's dangerous if at the same time they're not disposed to do something, if they're convinced that it's impossible to do anything against evil. The rosary is the remedy against this evil. Pray, pray, and ask for nothing more. Leave everything else to the mother of God. With prayer, it is possible to mitigate this tribulation, but it's no longer possible to avert it. We must be strong and prepared, trust in Christ and his mother, and be very, very assiduous in praying the rosary. Consider also the chastisement spoken of in the message of Our Lady of Akita to Sister Agnes Katsuko Sasagawa, a Japanese nun, on October 13, 1973, the anniversary of the miracle of the sun. Bishop Ito of the Diocese of Akita, Japan, approved this apparition as authentic and worthy of belief. While in Rome, spoke to Cardinal Ratzinger about the apparition. Howard D., former Philippine ambassador to the Vatican, stated in a 1998 interview with Inside the Vatican magazine that, quote, Bishop Ito was certain Akita was an extension of Fatima, and Cardinal Ratzinger personally confirmed to me that these two messages of Fatima and Akita are essentially the same, close quote. Now, Our Lady of Akita speaks of both a physical and a spiritual chastisement. And I quote from Our Lady. As I told you, if men do not repent and better themselves, the Father will inflict a terrible punishment on humanity. It will be a punishment greater than the deluge, such as one will have never been seen before. Fire will fall from the sky and will wipe out a great part of humanity, the good as well as the bad, sparing neither priest nor faithful. The survivors 
will find themselves so desolate they will envy the dead. The only arms that will remain for you will be the rosary and the sign left by my son. Each day recite the prayers of the rosary. With the rosary, pray for the pope, the bishops, and the priest. The work of the devil will infiltrate the, even the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against other bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. Churches and altars sacked. The church will be full of those who accept compromise, and the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. The demon will be especially implacable against souls consecrated to God. The thought of the loss of so many souls is the cause of my sadness. If sins increase in number and gravity, there will no longer be pardon for them. Pray very much the prayers of the rosary. I alone am able to still save you from the calamities which approach. Those who place their confidence in me will be saved. Now there's two other points uh, here that are worth pondering. First, Our Lady chose us to warn us about fire falling from the sky, to warn us about this terrible punishment if we do not repent. And she issued that warning from Akita. Akita is the precise place of the last bombing mission in World War II. The longest continuous bombing mission of the war, it's almost 3,800 miles, it was 17 hours, mostly all over water, with a bomb load of more than eight tons, the heaviest bo combined bomb and fuel load carried. All the 308 B-29 bombers assigned to the night mission were on the ground at Guam when the U.S. Navy radio station on the island picked up the urgent Japanese news bulletin announcing the imperial message that the emperor was going to accept the Potsdam Declaration, it, it was forthcoming. The planes were ordered to shut down engines, but then well after receiving the message that the Japanese were surrendering, the planes were ordered into the air. The attack itself occurred at midnight, in the very first minutes of the Feast of the Assumption, August 15, 1945. Second point worth noting is that Our Lady issued this warning of fire falling from the skies from Japan, the only nation to ever been attacked with nuclear weapons. The work of the devil infiltrate even the church in such a way the cardinals, one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. Churches and altars sacked. The church will be full of those who accept compromise. And the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. The demon will be especially implacable against the souls consecrated to God. There's that tale of the dragon again. Every day recite the prayers of the rosary. With the rosary, pray for the pope, the bishops, and the priests. Let's close. In 1984, Cardinal Ratzinger stated he had read The Third Secret. Quote, yes, I have read it. Why has it not been revealed? Because according to the judgment of the popes, it adds nothing different to what a Christian must know concerning from Revelation. That is, a radical call to conversion, the absolute importance of history, the dangers threatening the faith and the life of the Christian, and therefore of the world and the importance of the last things. If it is not made public, at least for now, it is in order to prevent religious prophecy from being mistaken for sensationalism. But the things contained in this third secret correspond to what has been announced in Scripture has been said again and again in many other Marian apparitions. First of all, that of Fatima itself and its well-known contents. Conversion and penance are the essential conditions for salvation. Close quote. In the vision released, what has been announced in scripture? And what could be mistaken for sensationalism? 
Where can we find the third secret in Scripture? Where's it at? During a conference, February 11, 1967, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, Cardinal Anaviani, the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, compared the third secret to the, quote, prophecies of sacred scripture which are covered in a veil of mystery. And he mentioned, for example, what is said in the prophecies contained in the book of the Apocalypse. During an interview on July 15, 1946, William T. Walsh asked Sister Lucia, has Our Lady given you any revelations on the theme of the end of the world? And Sister Lucia answered, quote, I cannot answer that question, close quote. Has Our Lady given you any revelations on the theme of the end of the world? I cannot answer that question. Antonio Sochi notes that if it's not a mere coincidence, the two popes, Paul VI and John Paul II, have both spoken of Fatima by evoking that same passage of the Apocalypse and solemn discourses delivered at the Portuguese sanctuary, one can conclude there's a strict linkage between the prophecy of the Apostle John and the third secret. At any rate, the confirmation arrives through the most authoritative source, because Sister Lucia herself, in her extremely rare authentic public declarations, explicitly linked the third part of the secret to the Apocalypse. Quote, it is all in the book of the Apocalypse. Read it. Close quote. She also indicated precisely chapters 8 through 13 of the Apocalypse. And this is truly disquieting because the eighth chapter regards the plague that will rain down upon the earth and other things regarding the times of the Antichrist. Close quote. So that's where we'll pick up next time.